This week on The Rail Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast, we are talking about General George Meade. Splitter, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. My name is Jeremy. With me this evening are Rail Splitter Nick. What's up, people on electronic devices listening to our great, wonderful show? And Rail Splitter Mary. Hey, Rail Splitters. So, uh, Mary just pointed out as we were kind of chatting before we started recording this evening that today, according at least to her Facebook memories, is one year exactly, one year to the day since she first appeared or first. Uh, was on our show at that point as a guest, uh, so obviously she has not missed a show since. So a uh, happy one year anniversary as a rail splitter, Mary. Thank you, and thank you for uh, having me be part of this this show. It's awesome. It's a wonderful experience. Well, we enjoyed having you on. I think the show kind of <laughs> became complete once we became three. So um, we did not plan it to be a one year thing. It just kind of happened to fall on that day. So kind of cool. Um, I thought it was a cool coincidence. So. Um, at awesome. any rate, yeah. At any One rate, years. did you bring cupcakes? <laughs> I didn't. Fortunately, the hell, you're supposed to bring a birthday treat. I know. I'm sorry. It's it's, right. it's very difficult to do over <laughs> over our video chat <laughs> clients. Uh, she can mail it to us later this week. Yeah, I'll mail it to you guys. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Shouldn't we be celebrating her? Why are we asking her to send us cupcakes? This seems very rude. It's like elementary school. Like the kids always bring in the cupcakes. You know, that's what we have to do where I work when it's your birthday. So when it's my birthday in August, I will bring in something for everybody to, to have. There like you go. Cupcakes or something. See? It's easy, easy enough. Yep. And you got a birthday coming up, so that's awesome too. Which I kind of remember from when you first started on the show that we were yeah, August, talking about that. August 10th. My, the first episode that I was on came out on August That's the 10th. what it was. Yeah, because I yeah. think we had recorded yeah. a couple or we were behind or going on vacation yeah. or something. So. Yeah. Now it's all coming clear. So for those of you who have been with us since then, thank you for your continued listenership. For those of you who are just jumping on, um, the first episode, uh, I was actually going to talk about this at the end, but it'll fit just fine here. The first episode that Mary appeared on, I believe we called Lincoln and his generals or something to that effect, uh, where we were, we called on Mary because she was a, she was and is a civil war blogger who talks a lot about different generals and, in. Um, Civil War figures like that. So uh, that the point or the topic of that episode was Lincoln and his relationship with Grant and Sherman predominantly. Uh, so it's uh, interesting or, or it's kind of cool, I think, that it's come full circle on today because, once again, we're talking about a Civil War general. Uh, and, of course, we'll talk about Lincoln and Lincoln's relationship with Meade, but um, this episode is um, also about George Meade. Which is, I think, an interesting and uh, unique element of our show. We have had episodes that were very general. Like, I think we had one like what we talk about when we talk about Lincoln. You know, we've had teaching the Civil War, like very broad topics. But we've also had very specific topics. And this one is pretty darn specific. We're zeroing in on one general who I think is widely known for precisely one thing, which was being the general of the army of the potomac at gettysburg 
Uh, so hopefully we'll give you a little bit more information than just that because I kind of always remember George Meade as the answer to a trivia question. You know, who was the general for the Union at Gettysburg? Because, of course, a lot of people want to say Grant or want it to be Grant or think it's Grant when in actuality it was definitely not Grant. It was General George Meade. So um, we are hopefully tonight going to paint a more complete depiction of General Meade and his relationship with me, with uh, Lincoln uh, so that he becomes more than just an answer to a trivia question and really um, hopefully comes to life a little bit for you if you are a student of the Civil War. Um, so we will definitely get into his career up to and including Gettysburg, his performance at Gettysburg, and the um, interesting and compelling story around um, how he lost that command and how Lincoln made that decision, because obviously that's a key element to their relationship. Um, as it is with most of our Civil War themed episodes, uh, Mary and Nick are more the Civil War scholars than I am, uh, so they will do much of the heavy lifting on this one. So um, I'm looking forward to also learning a little bit about General Meade. Uh, so I'll turn it over, Mary, to you first, and uh, why don't you go ahead and take it away and start the conversation about uh, the Gettysburg General himself, General George Meade. All right, so General Meade's nickname was actually Old Snap and Turtle, and that was because he had a little bit of a temper on him. Um, but anyway, he was born on December 31st um, in Cadiz, Spain. Um, his what? Father, what? Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's born in Spain. I did not know that until I was preparing for the show. Just for yep. record. Yep, and I just noticed I had the date wrong, and it's 1815. I had it was 1851 in my notes. It's 1815 that he was born in Cadiz, Spain. I think he was one of the only generals born, um, like, internationally, I think. Um, and his father was part of the U.S. Navy. Um, but because of some bad business agreements, Meade's dad ends up spending two years in a Spanish prison. And they end up returning to the U.S. in 1817. So uh, <coughs> little, little General Meade is only about two years old when he comes back to the U.S. Uh, Meade's father unfortunately passes away in 1828. And um, so his mother is left to raise him and his siblings. And, and he, he got himself in some financial trouble, too. I think he did, he yes. Over there. And he yeah. was like... You put money towards the Spanish government, yeah. and then they got involved in a war. I can't remember which war it is off the top of my head. Um, but, yeah, so the family took hit from that aspect as well. Yeah, so they were not they were not well off financially, and Meade was actually quite interested in becoming a lawyer. But his mother said, oh, why don't you go to West Point? It's free. Um, so he ends up getting appointed by Andrew Jackson to attend West Point. And in 1835, Meade graduates. He is 19th of 56 cadets, and he graduates in the same class as Montgomery Blair, who would go on to become Lincoln's postmaster general for most of his first term. Um, so post-grad, Meade surveyed railways. He went to the West Indies. He also spent some time in Florida, which is where, um, during, the Seminole, uh, during the Seminole War, and that's where General Sherman actually was for a time as well. Um, but Meade ends up getting sent back north because he ends up getting malaria. And then in October of 1836, he resents his command in the military. Um, much like Grant and Sherman, he wasn't completely satisfied with military life, and he thought he could, you know, he wanted to give some other stuff a try. So he took to railway work. He did surveys, including surveying the border between Maine and what was then British North America, what is now Canada. Um, and during in December of 1840, actually on his birthday, he married uh, Margaret Sargent. 
And then he found out that engineers could take on military work. Um, so Meade decides to return to the army and his brother-in-law happened to be the governor of Virginia, helps him get a commission in the Corps of Topographical Engineers. He begins working at Philadelphia constructing lighthouses. On August, um, but then that got interrupted because on August 12th, 1844, he receives orders like so many other famous Civil War generals like Grant um, and Lee. He has to go fight in the Mexican War. And he actually works for the staff of General Zachary Taylor. Um, he is, is breveted first lieutenant for gallant conduct at the Battle of Monterey. And after the Mexican War, he gets involved in constructing lighthouses, breakwaters, and coastal surveys in Florida, New Jersey. And just a couple of the lighthouses that he helped construct were the Barnegat Lighthouse on Long Island Beach and the Absecon Lighthouse in Atlantic City. Of course, I picked the two that are the hardest to pronounce. <laughs> he also designed a hydraulic lamp that was adopted by the U.S. Lighthouse Board. And in 1857, and I thought this was pretty cool, um, he took over surveying the Great Lakes. He completed surveying Lake Huron, which is the lake that my town is on. So I'm not sure if he was ever on the Canadian side doing any surveying. If he was, he would have went right through my town. Um, if not, he would have been right across from my town on Lake Huron at some point. Um, and he extended the surveys of Lake Michigan. He also changed how water levels were taken to become a more uniform system. And in 1860, the first detailed report of the Great Lakes was published. And Meade stayed with this survey work until 1861 when the Civil War broke out. So he's had a pretty interesting career up to this point. Um, you know, a lot of it seems to be associated with the water, like with constructing lighthouses and surveying the Great Lakes and all that. Um, uh, one thing to add in there real quick, when uh, he had a second sit down in Florida after Mexican-American War, and he actually, Fort Meade, Florida still exists today, named after Meade for being down there. And Stonewall Jackson will actually spend some time in Fort Meade before the Civil War as well. And he'll actually get himself involved in like a scandal. That's uh, right. With, with another soldier down there. Um, and I, God, do you remember what the scandal was for? I can't remember. Oh, the time I was just right reading now. about it the other day, but wasn't it something about, wasn't the, I don't know if it had to do with a woman or not, but the guy it was, was over the, like morale issues. Yes. Yeah. Like, it was a morality issue and Jackson was calling him out for it. And he went back down and then basically he ends up leaving there and going and teaching at the, uh, uh, the military, VMI. Virginia, yeah, yeah. VMI. military, yeah, or VMA, so, VMA, I think. Yes. So I thought that was interesting. So you could live in Fort Meade, uh, Florida, which I hear is a hell of a lot better than Fillmore, Utah. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there is our there are real splitters is our Fillmore. That is true. There is a real splitter in Fillmore, Utah. So yeah. um, there is some positive qualities to that town. <laughs> Um, so on August 31st, 1861, Meade is appointed Brigadier General of Volunteers and assigned to command the 2nd Brigade of Pennsylvania Reserves Division of the Army of the Potomac. Um, in early 1862, the Army's organized into corps, and I'm still into corps. I'm still trying to understand how the structure works, but I think it's Corps Division Brigade Regiment is how it works. Um, so he is part of the 1st Corps under Irvin McDowell. Um, June 30th, 1862, Meade is wounded three times at the Battle of Glendale, a battle which I do not know much about at all. Um, Meade 
is at the Second Battle of Bull Run at the end of August 1862, where he makes a very heroic stand on Henry House Hill to protect the rear of the Army of the Potomac as it unfortunately retreats. Hey, uh, real quick, uh, I found, when I was doing some research, I came across that Meade, when he gets injured at Glendale, he gets shot twice, one in the arm or the leg. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I wrote it down. In the arm, and then there's one in the side that goes through the front and exits at the back. But at first, he thought he got shot in the back, and he was extremely worried about that because he was fearful it would make him look like a coward, um, (laughs) like he turned and ran. And this was actually a concern and a worry that he had. So um, that just found that fascinating. So. Um, but then once they looked at it and realized that it actually went through the like the side and exited the back, so mm-hmm. which is probably pretty rare with the mini balls actually too. Yeah, uh, for it to go straight through like that, mm-hmm. and then so he was out of commission for about forty five days, and he comes back. So um, you know, for getting shot two or three times, there you know, that's... Um, pretty quick recovery, getting back yeah. right in there, uh, and that's kind of like a reoccurring thing. Mead was a tough son of a bitch. Oh, he was. And so was his horse. His horse, Old Baldy, um, was like wounded, I think, at the first battle of Bull Run or something and like left for dead on the field. And then they found the horse standing eating grass. And the horse ends up getting wounded like a bunch more times, just like Meade does. Um, It actually outlives George. Does, yes. And they like have it mounted. I think they have the head. They do. Mounted and it got relocated in a couple different places. So. Yeah, um, I believe out in Philly, you could go see Old Baldy. Yeah, you you can. And I I did a blog post about him a few years ago. A really fascinating story. But just like at Gettysburg, like Baldy got shot, I think, on the second day. And he normally would move forward when Meade was like, okay, let's go. And then he wouldn't move forward. And Meade's like, okay, he's done. So he had to get a new horse for, for the rest of Gettysburg. Um. Anyway, so Meade becomes, after Second Battle of Bull Run, Meade becomes commander of the 3rd Division in the 1st Corps at the beginning of the Maryland Campaign, which would include, like, battles like South Mountain and Antietam. And at South Mountain, this is where Meade starts kind of distinguishing himself, um, because at one point, Hooker saw, like, General Hooker saw what he was doing, and he said, look at Meade, why with troops like those led in that way, I can win anything. So he's already... Meade's already becoming known as somebody who, who can lead the troops. Um, and at Antietam, when Hooker is wounded during the morning, Meade ends up replacing him as commander of the First Corps. And he's selected by McClellan to do so. Um, and there are other generals superior in rank to Meade being surpassed. So obviously McClellan had known of Meade too at this time. And Meade is again wounded while fighting at Antietam. And at Fredericksburg, which was a Union defeat, Meade's division manages to break through the Confederate lines. He manages to get through a gap in Stonewall Jackson's corps at the southern end of the battlefield. And because of this, he ends up becoming, he's promoted to Major General Volunteers. And after the battle, he has command of the 5th Corps. And this leads us to Chancellorsville. Where yeah, took, he, oh, the yeah, Fredericksburg part definitely took... Uh, just so people know, that was south of um, where most of us think of Fredericksburg. We think of them charging up um, and, you know, the multiple charges there that were unsuccessful. But he was actually, uh, was it the Union left flank at that time? I think so, yeah. 
So, and then at Antietam, I just wanted to add real quick, mm-hmm. he will meet Lincoln because Lincoln comes out there, talks to McClellan, and Meade will actually kind of ride around with McClellan and Lincoln um, briefly there too. So that was probably their first meeting, I think. Because yeah, I would I would guess yeah, so. I think yeah. Um, so at Chancellorsville, Meade's fifth corps is left in reserve for most of the battle, so he doesn't really see like there's no action at at Chancellorsville for him. Um, so that leads us into when Meade will take command. Um, so on June the 2nd, Lincoln decides that he needs to replace General Joseph Hooker. And he calls upon General John Reynolds um, to have a meeting with, with him at the White House. And John Reynolds is given, like he's offered the command of the Army of the Potomac, and Reynolds says, I'm not doing this unless you give me complete control. In other words, I do not want to have to consult with Stanton and Halleck and Washington all the time. I want to do, you know, I want to do what I think needs to be done. And Lincoln at the time couldn't agree to this and Reynolds turns it down. But then he says, he's like, you know what, that guy, he's pretty good. I think you should pick him. Um, Like in other words, Reynolds speaks very highly of him. And um, that's who Lincoln ends up picking when Joseph Hooker resigns. So, on June the 28th, 1863, at 3 in the morning, Colonel James A. Hardy of General Halleck's staff delivers the news to Meade. So Meade's awakened, and he's standing there probably still half asleep and finding out he's got command of the Army of the Potomac. And the telegram from Halleck just says, General, you will receive with this the order of the president placing you in command of the Army of the Potomac. So he's not being asked by Lincoln. He's basically being told, you, you are now in command. And Meade's response, I, I laughed when I read it because it was, I think it's very typical Meade. Well, I've been tried and condemned without a hearing, and I suppose I shall have to go to the execution. <laughs> and, and I think that's a great uh, example of kind of where Lincoln was in the war with, you know, um, kind of tripping over, I don't want to say tripping over, but just having a hard time finding decisions to find a leader. Um, and that's in that kind of series of, you know, McClellan, Burnside, Hooker, uh, Pope, you know, in the 1862. There's, you know, so many um, generals who he hires and they fail and he fires and just trying to find somebody. And I think that that plays very much plays into the um, the story. Some could say myth, maybe not, but like kind of what, what, what Grant has kind of grown to become because, you know, he really takes on this role as the savior of of the union effort um because lincoln was struggling so much but i think Meade is a great example of uh someone who kind of could get lost in that series of generals and um may get you know kind of a bad rap i think because of it because he really wasn't unsuccessful uh he made some mistakes to be sure um but that quote i think really embodies exactly where lincoln was um, where, you know, you had somebody turn the, turn the post down, you know, which is kind of difficult to conceive of, you know, turning a major promotion like that down. Um, but that's what that job was probably looked at at the time because it was a revolving door of people who tried and failed. It's a revolving door of people like generals going through it. And it's like, well, if I take this on, then I'm guaranteed to get fired. Like, Right. And you have like, and I think Burnside's a really good example. And, you know, sometime I'm sure we'll get around to doing an Antietam or a Fredericksburg and Antietam um, chat. But 
um, where Burnside was just trying to do what he thought he was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, so, you know, that was unsuccessful hooker. I think hooker and Pope were probably trying to do what they thought was best and weren't successful at it. Uh, but I think, you know, Burnside was one who was okay. It didn't work when you were doing what you thought was right. So I'm just going to try to do what I think Lincoln wants me to do, which is basically be the anti McClellan. Uh, that didn't really work. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's it's. I think this is a really good example of exactly where Lincoln was with those decisions, and that he didn't have really you know a whole lot to do because Meade's resume up to that point wasn't exactly the the material that would kind of fit the post. Yet you know, yet Lincoln went with him, and um, uh, and I think that it was you know obviously we're all we kind of look at it in hindsight as this is all just a path to Grant. Uh, but I think that it's important to note that uh, it was um, not a post that was really sought after by a whole lot of folks. I mean, obviously McClellan was super ambitious and was very much seeking the title. But other than that, you know, Meade clearly didn't want it. No, no. And, it, and I mean, like, you know, Reynolds go now there's a couple different stories about Reynolds. There's one where Reynolds is a little bit more cool and like, no, no, I couldn't do it. But the one that I've read more accounts of is that he said he's, I'm not doing this unless you give me the control so that I can make the decisions that I want. Because I think you saw how, you know, like there was times when I think it was Fredericksburg where they needed the pontoon bridges and they didn't get them in time. So I think he's trying to cut that kind of the, just the bureaucracy out of it and do what he needs to do to get the war done. But Lincoln wasn't at that time willing to relinquish that control. Yeah, and uh, look where it got Reynolds for uh, not taking that. You know? uh, yes, yeah. First day of Gettysburg, Reynolds. Ends up getting <laughs> you <killed>. Yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, July 1st. He ends up getting killed. Um, That's called karma. Oh, you don't, mess with Lincoln. you don't mess with Lincoln. Aww. <laughs> so Meade, quite possibly, I've always said that Meade had the worst week on the job, like first week on the job ever. So June 28th at 3am, he finds out that he's leading this army. And then on July the 1st, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg begins. And um, but what we see out of this battle is one of Meade's greatest strengths. Um, at least I think it's a great strength that he has. And that's in his way that he was he could read his commanders, pick the best ones that for the job and delegate tasks. He didn't have to be there. Meade actually doesn't show up to Gettysburg Battlefield until about 2 a.m. on July the 2nd. Um, what he does is he gets word from Buford as to what's going on there on um, at end of June and then, you know, beginning of July. And he sends word to Reynolds at 4 a.m. on July the 1st, hey, get down to Gettysburg and see what, Buf- what, what Buford's up to, see what you think and if we should do battle there. And we all know what happens to Reynolds when he goes down there. He ends up getting killed in around like 10, 30, 11 o'clock on the morning of July the 1st. Um, but then after that, when Meade found out that Reynolds was killed, um, it was actually um, General Howard who took over as senior. He was the most senior one on the battlefield, so he took over from Reynolds. But Meade ends up sending General Hancock down there and says, you're to take over and decide if the battle should be fought here. And Hancock actually says, I'm not the senior officer. Howard is, and Meade says, no, I'm telling you to take over. And that's because Meade trusted Hancock so much. He knew him. He'd worked with him before. 
Well, that's so, because Howard's uh, track record going to the Saints. Oh, great. yeah, I know. It's not but good at all. The reputation of his, him and his troops are oh, definitely hurting. They've been overrun numerous times. Exactly, yeah. And I think Meade knew that, and he made the best decision possible. So Hancock had to go down and tell Howard, like, dude, <laughs> I'm in charge now. I'm sorry. So so I think there's a couple schools of thought on that. There, you know, I think some people spin that to say that Meade was gun-shy and didn't wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't willing to step up and make the decision. Mary, it sounds like you're taking the the I don't, I don't know if I say argument or the side that uh, he was just delegating. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think there's any value to that that school of thought? That's like, well, yeah, Mead was too afraid to make the decision, so he just delegated. I think Mead was. I don't think he was afraid. He Mead had a plan of battle for, and I the name's escaping me for the area that he was in at that time, which was Pipe Creek. Yeah, Pipe Creek. That's it at Pipe Creek. And I think he wanted to stay there just in case something happened there because to him that was the ground to fight on. He had a whole plan for it. Unfortunately, his staff did not get get it out on time and he was very angry about that. Um, so that's why the battle ends up being fought in Gettysburg. Um, I see it as one of his strengths because you know he knows he should probably stay back there and not go running to Gettysburg just in case there could be, you know, something happens or whatever. Um, and then what plays out day two shows, I believe, that, you know, he wasn't afraid. I mean, day two, yeah. he's plugging holes all along. I mean, he's exactly. right out there, you know, right in the front in some cases, plugging those holes so, um, you know, we're not getting taken over. Um, and just showing his brilliance of delegating, of maneuvering troops around, and to me, that's kind of his, his shiny moment is that day two. It, it yeah. is, yeah. Um, and he, you know, he's up at two in the morning and talking to his generals. I doubt if he got any sleep. And then he's up, you know, in the morning and he's delegating them along the lines. Well, I mean, the only one that breaks away from the defensive line is Sickles because he sees something over at the peach orchard. And he breaks the line. And that's where, where Meade went out to him and got very angry with Sickles for moving the position. And Sickles is like, well, I can go back. And Meade's like, it's too late. And they were already starting to fire on him at that point. And then that day, all the way till Meade dies, Sickles will continue to be a thorn in his freaking side. Yes, so. he will. As well as many others. Mm-hmm. Dude, we need to do an episode just on Sickles, man. That guy is oh. a... We need to do a movie on that guy. He's a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... And just this leads into the next part, and you mentioned this, Nick, like this that meet this what this delegation will actually play against Mead because he's dele- Mead's delegating people he knows. He knows Reynolds, he's friends with Reynolds, he's friends with Hancock, they get along. And then you've got Dan Sickles, who doesn't get anything, and then you know, Mead orders him to a certain position. And, you know, Sickles is like, oh, there's a gap over in the peach orchard I'm going to break. And now there's some arguments that, you know, that that actually helped the union that day because Longstreet was coming along that road and he wasn't expecting, you know, union troops to be there at all. And that kind of threw what the, con- what the Confederate Army was going to do. Um, and Meade, like I said, was not happy that Sickles moved his corps. And Gettysburg... Does it results in a union victory, but Lee retreats and Meade does not pursue at all. 
So before we move on to that, do you guys have any more, um, anything else to comment on about Meet at Gettysburg? Well, I, I think Meet at Gettysburg, not, not Meet at Gettysburg specifically, but how history has remembered Meet at Gettysburg, I think is um, kind of a good example of just how how overlooked he can be because you talk about the heroes of Gettysburg. Gettysburg's like the only battle where um, like you get like there's fairly low ranking officers who are well known. Like Chamberlain being the first one, of course. Like very rarely are we talking. I believe he's a major, right? Like very rarely are do of other battles do people who are even even you know certainly casual Civil War fans even Civil War buffs to a certain degree, like, you know, you know generals, you know, like, corps commanders and all that kind of stuff, but, like, there are so many names with Gettysburg that come up on the Union side specifically that don't come up in other battles. You know, you talk about Reynolds and Buford and uh, Chamberlain and, and others um, where you can talk about, you know, many of Grant's major battles. you got Grant and Sherman. And then more, I mean, obviously the more scholarly you get, the clearly there's more people, but very rarely do people talk about me. Like that, that battle is known, um, I'm really on both sides. Um, you got Pickett and Longstreet to a much higher degree than Lee, um, which is unique, I think, to Gettysburg. And I think that's part of how Meade is largely forgotten, that Gettysburg is, is told at a much smaller, the story is kind of told that at a smaller level than the kind of the big movements that you talk about in, you know, Fredericksburg or Antietam where you have, you're talking about the much larger engagement or the battle as a whole. Um, so I think that it's, 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 I think that that's a very compelling element to look at. Like, why is that battle remembered that way? Like even in the film, getting that, you know, from 1993, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, a Hollywood superstar like Martin Sheen or Tom Berenger or um, Jeff Bridges. You got like a washed up old TV actor playing a very, very small role, which is the commander of the Army of the Potomac, which should be a pretty significant role, right, in that in that movie, or could be. Um, so I don't think he played a small role in it. He was certainly the, the commander of the Army of the Potomac, yet we don't really talk about him a whole lot. I don't really think his presence... I mean, there's so many dang monuments at Gettysburg. I'm sure there's one somewhere, but, um, you know, you don't really feel his presence at Gettysburg like you do many other figures. And, um, yeah, so I think that, to me, that's just kind of, um, as you kind of, as I kind of think about how, how we learn history, how we teach history, how the story is told, like, why is he so forgotten? Um, and I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's because of just, you know, how, how, great the you know i don't want to say lower ranking because obviously major is a high rank but how great they did at gettysburg um but like even dan sickles is probably more well known or, could, or arguably as well known in the gettysburg world um or at least people can name what he did at gettysburg maybe a little more easily than mead um and then of course the second part of that is how whenever the talk comes to the retreat and why Lee wasn't pursued, then 100% of the blame goes to Meade, which maybe it should. I'm not saying it shouldn't, but like when we talk about what got screwed up at Gettysburg, well, that was Meade's fault for not pursuing um, when that's debatable, I think. Um, I had a history professor in college who was kind of a Civil War specialist, 
Um, and he, his argument was that Lee executed that retreat masterfully. That that was one of the most tactically brilliant retreats ever orchestrated uh, because the way that he did it helped stave off that attack. And they were able to, you know, because it's not easy to do just to, it's not like they they just say uncle or wave a white flag and then slip, you know, go off into the sunset. Um, so, he, you know, he, he made a very convincing argument that Lee actually did a, did a great job with that retreat, and that's what prevented the counterattack. Um, so anyway, I just think, yeah, it's to me, just not, not from necessarily learning about me, but just learning about history in general, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by that whole, like, why is the story told this way? And I don't know. I just think maybe it's just a little bit more compelling to leave meat out of it in a lot of ways. Well, I think the combination of things. I think one thing, it's kind of like Meads, this head coach of the superstar team. You know, you got a lot of different superstars for different reasons. You know, you got Chamberlain um, and kind of the legacy that grows out of his charge down. Um, you, you have Skulls, who's a character. Um you have, you know, Reynolds, he, he dies on the battlefield. Uh, Hancock, you know, he becomes a star of many battles, and he goes on to a political career. So I, I think part of it is he's kind of like this, and he's not one to advocate for himself. He, he isn't. I mean, he didn't politic at all when it was kind of coming down to, you know, who was going to be in charge of the Army uh, Potomac. Others did that on his behalf. So I think that's part of the reason why Meade's forgotten. Part of it is he only lived seven years after the war. Mm-hmm. Whereas you got Sickles lives in his 90s. Hancock becomes a presidential candidate. Chamberlain lives for, um, I believe, two uh, you know, uh, years later as well. Um, fourteen, I think. Yeah, as, as well as all the Southern generals who on the long street will live um, for a while too. And they'll get the, you know, the glory of, you know, um, reunions and stuff like that, as well as the, the whole lost cause. And all. I guess long street doesn't benefit from that at all. Um, but, you know, Lee, you know, I think it's a combination of that. And then I think the retreat and the fact that he's just ripped apart in the newspaper. There's a committee that's put together to look into it. Did he actually make major mistakes? You know, they're coming for his head. I think it's a combination of all those things is why Meade's forgotten. Um, but to me, he was like that coach who didn't look for the glory, didn't have the sexy, you know, press clips. He's just a guy who put the players in the right position to be successful. And that's specifically what he did, you know, on day one with some of his decisions, sending Reynolds up there. You know, Reynolds made some key decisions. Hancock definitely was, I believe, the right guy. And moving people around December 2nd. Um, and then December, I mean, uh, July. December 2nd. Yeah. Yeah. July. <laughs> July, you know, Christmas in July. Yeah. Um, and then day three, I mean, he was anticipating where the attack was coming, and he was right about that as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Oh, you're fine. Oh, okay. I was going to say he, yeah, he told John Gibbon when they had a meeting the night before, he said, Lee, if he's going to attack, he's going to attack at your center. And that's exactly where he attacked. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, I got a lot of thoughts about the pursuit, so um, I don't want to jump ahead of the game though. So yeah, Mary, well, you- and, I, and I think there are, there's a little bit of value, uh, in that argument about Gettysburg specifically that like it was, I, I believe the war hinged upon that battle. If it was a Confederate victory, you know, the, the whole war could have shifted. Washington was at stake. 
But, and I'm not, maybe I'm just saying that because I was just there a couple weeks ago. Like, it's like textbook, like textbook military 101. You know, the high ground is the advantage. And, like, when you look at the Union positions versus the Confederate positions, it's hard to be like, well, I don't, how could they have possibly lost? You know, like, the, the, they just had such an advantageous position. And a lot of it was because of those um, Buford specifically, but others who said, like, this, if the battle happens here, this is where we need to be. And they mm-hmm. did put the and, and and Meade kind of made a good point, saying like if the if the if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here. Um, and I think it was probably one of those. And if it doesn't happen here, we're just going to watch where they go, you know, and then kind of continue the chess match and move back and forth. But they had a good position and kept it until Sickles almost lost it. Um, mm-hmm. And then he just had the the ability to see see its importance and to really keep it. Uh, I'm not taking anything away from it, but I do think that. Um, like you were saying, Nick, plug in the holes and making sure they maintain their position. Because really, the Union, it was a defensive battle on the Union side, and they just kind of withstood and inflicted heavy damage on on the um, on the enemy. Um, I didn't, I don't know, and maybe that's why Chamberlain is so well known because there wasn't any real major military tactical decisions made at the at Meade's level, other than like we've got the high ground. <laughs> Don't lose it, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Maintain the high ground, and you'll control the field, and that's what happened. You know, you said something interesting, which kind of ties into the pursuit here. Is I and you said that for the South, it could have been that decisive blow, and I agree, it definitely could have been with the election coming. I mean, Lee knew this too, and I think Lee always thought of politics as well as military strategy into how this could impact stuff. Um. I don't think that this battle, and even with a pursuit that Lincoln wanted, would ever have been a decisive blow for the South. I I just don't think it was in the works to be. Lincoln thought it was the decisive blow, that Napoleonic, you know, battle that ends the entire war. And first of all, I don't think you really have much of that in modern warfare. Mm -hmm. I think your decisive blows end up being political blows, like the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And that's what this would have been if the South won, I feel. Um, but I just don't think there was any chance to take Lee out, to wipe him out. There, there just wasn't a chance to do that. Right. I, mean, I do think there was on the other side, though. I think yeah, the South probably, one, because they would I have taken Washington. it would have been a political victory, though, because it would have killed Lincoln's chances for re-election. Mm-hmm. Well, and, it, and who knows, because you can't, there's no way to know. But their, their chances of getting to Washington would have been significantly higher, because they're attacking from the north. So if yeah. they break through that, if they if they break through the Union line, and and dis, not destroy the army, but you know, send it into disarray where they can't regroup and they push through, they could have gone almost unabated to Washington, which could have you know who know what happens if Washington falls, or if Lincoln dies somehow in that. Like, what does that happen? What happens mm-hmm. to the Union cause? I think that there's quite a lot of value in the argument to say that would have ended the war and the Union would have lost. I agree, Nick. Though on the other side there wasn't a decisive blow. It was a war of attrition. I mean, it really, and it, Grant, I think, saw that first and saw that most clearly and then just, you know, led that way in a very obvious way. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think that you you make a very good point that um, perhaps Lincoln overreacted when he said you could have ended the whole thing right, right here. Yeah. Because you still had the whole West. I mean, there's still another army 
you know, the Army of the Cumberland, right? Is that what they were called? Yeah, I think, yeah, because yeah, they're, they're, they were, and just, you know, remember, too, that Vicksburg is one on July the 4th. And um, speaking of attrition, the two generals, like you said, General Grant saw it was a war of attrition, and so did General Sherman. They are both in the West at the time. And then March 1864, one of them that believes in that comes to the East, and that's Grant. So you have one in the East, one in the West that believe in this war of attrition. Yeah, and I think that's kind of Meade's downfall. I think Meade was mm-hmm. smart where he realized, like him and Longstreet, realized that the advantage is on the defensive. It took a lot of generals to understand that. Meade understood that, and he mm-hmm. sees it in Gettysburg. And it probably makes him a reluctant offensive general. But the thing he could not stomach was that it was a war of attrition. He just could not, like, you know, Grant sacrificed the guys. I mean, that's basically what Grant had to do. I mean, um, and Grant didn't even understand to what levels it would take. I mean, he definitely had some blunders, whether it was the bloody angle or, you know, uh, the whole crater issue at uh, Petersburg. But um, I, I just don't think Meade had the stomach to do the strategy that was necessary to get the job done. When I look at both sides, you know, when I look at the West and the East, it seems like two totally different types of war being, being waged, but that could have, that's because of the generals involved in it. You have two generals in the West that are, they're starting to realize that it's about attrition. And then in the East, it seems to be like a different type of game almost, you know, this more kind of the civil, I don't know, civilized warfare, but just it's different. Somehow well, you bring you bring Grant back east, and all of a sudden the game changes. Well, I think that's just the nature of this war, anyway. And I don't know we're getting a little bit away from me, and we'll come back to him. But traditionally, and traditional like any other war, Meade would have been perfectly correct not to pursue mm-hmm. because, like, your goal is to maintain the line, hold the ground. They mm-hmm. had the field at the end, and as Lee was leaving, they could have easily just taken that ground. But there is no ground, right? I mean, I realize that it's geographically north and south, but um, I think when we say war of attrition, what we really mean is that what they they ultimately had to come to the conclusion, this was one of the rare wars where the goal was to destroy the opponent's army, not to maintain the field or to get, you know, like World War II, the push is to Berlin. Like if you could get to Berlin without even engaging with the army, that'd be great. If you, you know what I mean? Like the goal is to, to... push them back out of their occupied areas. It's really, it's not a scoreboard. It's not, you know, but in this particular war with the resolve of the Confederacy, that's what it was. You had to destroy that army, um, especially when much of that war was in Virginia. It was in Mississippi. It was in Georgia, you know, so like it wasn't really about where the armies were as far as land goes. I mean, it was to a certain degree, but I think when it comes to ultimately winning or losing the war, it was they had to come to the fact that in order to win this war, they had to destroy the South's ability to make war, not take Richmond, not not necessarily take Richmond, not to push the Lee's army out of the north, because that's what happened. After Gettysburg, they didn't pursue him, but Lee never came north again. No. So it didn't matter that, you know, like from a military perspective, he retreated back to like the South back to their, their country, you know, in, in their eyes. So that's a huge military, like traditionally militarily, that's a huge victory. They never, they never again set foot in a major way in the North, but in the context of this war, 
that's not what the goal is. The goal is to destroy their ability to make war. Yep. Yeah, and that's something that Meade struggled with. I mean, if you look at some of his biggest um, tantrums, if you want to call it, or um, where his attitude came out was when the soldiers, you know, he, he would never have been able to do the March to the Sea. No. Right? He did not believe in ruining the resources, you know, waging economic warfare, basically, like yeah. Sherman did. Meade could never have done that. And if you look at some of his biggest outbursts towards others, you know, when he got a sword out, like hit the people, mm-hmm. um, the soldiers was when, you know, they were taking advantage of different property, other people's yeah. properties. Um, so, yeah, me, me just didn't have the stomach for it. I mean, I think he was brilliant when when the guns were going, the bullets were whizzing by him. I mean, you see it time and again, whether it was Southbound, Antietam, um, all the different battles. And, you know, he was good at getting the troops, plugging holes, maneuvering them around but he was not the guy to lead the overall um, strategy of the war. That's what Grant was needed for. That's mm-hmm. what Grant did. And even Grant understood the importance of meat yeah. um, because he would have had the power to get him out there. I mean, heck, Lincoln definitely, you know, was agitated with him by the time he gives Grant power. But, you know, Grant got meat there. Yep, I agree completely. All right, so we want to go through the rest of Meade's career and life, and then we'll move on to our weekly features. So after the battle at Gettysburg, like Meade, as we've been discussing, does not pursue at all. Hold on. I think I know why he doesn't pursue, because he does get congratulations from General McClellan after his victory at Gettysburg. So I I don't know if that that had something to do with it. (laughs) And it's the anniversary of when McClellan was appointed. (laughs) Today, too. <laughs> there you so go. We're all about the anniversaries. Yeah. Um, on July the 14th, 1863, Lincoln sat down and he wrote a letter that uh-huh. he never sent to Meade. And it is like reading it, it's like, like, I don't know if he's angry or it's more like, I'm not, I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Like, <laughs> like just it's, and I would encourage all of our listeners to go find the letter and read it. Um, so in the letter, Lincoln expresses his disappointment to Meade in not pursuing Lee and to ultimately destroy the Army of Northern Virginia. And Lincoln's very angry in the letter. He states that Meade had won a victory at Gettysburg, and when Lee retreated, Meade did not pursue. Lincoln tells him he had 20,000 troops plus others within supporting distance that could have been used to defeat Lee's army. And just some of the quotes from it. Like, and yet you stood and let the flood run down, bridges be built, and the enemy move away at his leisure without attacking him. Anyway, my dear general, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would, in connection with our other late successes, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. Your golden opportunity is gone, and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. Yeah, that's a line that's like damn yeah there's just such, there's such raw emotion that lincoln is feeling at the time and um i was reading um like doris kearns goodwin she said that lincoln would sit down and often write these letters and he would pile all of his emotions into this one note and then he would put it aside until his emotions had cooled down and never send it and that's like i think that lincoln's kind of therapy for himself in dealing with this um because Lincoln never sent the letter to Meade, um, tells it, you know, at least, you know, is to me that um, Lincoln came to realize why he didn't pursue. 
that Meade recognized that his army, after three days of hard battle, no sleep, you know, there's he's lost major commanders. He's lost Reynolds. Um, Hancock is wounded. Uh, Gibbon was wounded as well. Um, so was Sickles. And I think Lincoln realized that Meade was resting his troops and that to pursue Lee may have been more detrimental than, you know, anything else that it could have really harmed them more more than it could do good and congress did thank meade and the officers for their action at gettysburg and they stated they repulsed defeated and drove back broken and dispirited beyond the rappahannock the veteran army of the rebellion and meade did meet with lincoln and after that meade wrote to his wife and stated the president was as he always is very considerate and kind he found no fault with my operations, although it was very evident he was disappointed that I had not got a battle out of Lee. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit a lot of it um, correct there. I mean, to me, I think the big thing is he did lose several major generals, as he stated. Mm -hmm. Several of those soldiers or divisions that got there marched extremely long distances to get yeah. there and to fight, and they had to be exhausted. Yeah. Plus, we got to understand that me just witnessed and watched probably one of the most devastating days of warfare ever, you know, with Pickett's charge mm -hmm. and seeing what the advantage of the defensive does to somebody. I mean, that's got to weigh on you to see all those soldiers out there. And, and on top of that, he did hold, you know, war councils with his generals and they voted five to one to not to attack Lee, you know, um, to go after him. Um, and even Howard sends Lincoln. This is General Howard, who, you know, I'm sure could, would not have been thrilled that Meade sent Hancock to kind of, you know, leapfrog him. Mm -hmm. He sends a letter to Lincoln. We have, if I may be allowed to say, a commanding general whom all the officers with whom I have come in contact express complete confidence. I said this much because of the censor and of the misrepresentation which have grown out of Lee's escape, I must say that the general acted wisely. So this is Howard sending a letter to Lincoln on July 18, you know, basically supporting him, saying we got his back. We believe in him. We got confidence in him still. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that doesn't do it for Lincoln because there's numerous letters from Lincoln to Halleck uh, and, and talking about, you know, sending it all through September. Um, still hoping that he takes. There, there's one point where he like brings up the like the ratio. Um, where is it at? If the enemy's sixty thousand are sufficient to keep our ninety thousand away from Richmond, why, by the same rule, many not forty thousand of ours keep their sixty thousand away from Washington, leaving us fifty fifty something thousand to put to some other use. Having practically come to the mere defense, it seems to be not economic at all to employ twice as many men for the object as are needed. So basically kind of bring up the math. All right, we have all these extra troops. Let's do something with them, attack. And he actually gives Meade an out too in October. Lincoln says basically, um, if you attack, I will take complete blame for the failure and you can have complete success for the victory if it happens. But Meade chose not to. And, yeah. and I think it's because he became a defensive general Definitely, if he wasn't already beforehand after Gettysburg.
Yep. So I'm just kind of wrap it up here because we're getting close to our our hour show here. Um, I do think that part of looking at why Meade kind of had his downfall, I guess, after such a great victory of Gettysburg. Obviously, Grant was very successful, but you, I think we oftentimes overplay Gettysburg and underplay Vic, Vicksburg. Not we, but like just people in general. I agree, yeah. So like the fact that those happened essentially at the same time, mm-hmm. and militarily speaking, the Battle of Vicksburg was ar- arguably more important. Um, it's not that shocking that, that Grant, you know, because it's not that shocking that Grant ended up being the commander of all the armies. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really... And that he eventually, again, then kind of took over control from Meade. Um, so, like, to look at, and I think this is a mistake that Civil War learners and Civil War, um, I don't want to say scholars because they don't, but, like, people into the Civil War overemphasize the East, ignore the West, you know, and they're all, all they can think about is Antietam, Gettysburg, you know, all those battles. Um, and they're like, well, man, Grant comes out of nowhere <laughs> It takes over after Meade fails to pursue, and that's not the case at all. Oh, um, and I'm not saying that, you know, I, I was that way too. And I think that, like, World War II, like, casual World War II people tend to focus on Europe and not as much on the Pacific. I don't know why, just yeah. people do that. I don't know. Um, yes. You know, Eisenhower becomes a hero, MacArthur, not as much. You know what I mean? So, like, um, I just think that... I think a lot of the legacy of war comes from not necessarily what happened or what was important, but what interests people the most. And Gettysburg just interests people more than a siege. Like it's the three-day battle, the bravery on both sides, the immense bloodshed and sacrifice on both sides. It's just more interesting. It makes a better movie than the siege, you know, the long, long siege at Vicksburg. But that was a brilliantly conducted campaign at Vicksburg, um, probably more so and over a longer period of time than Gettysburg. Um, so Grant taking over wasn't really like, you know, Lincoln finally turning to, to somebody. It was it was very logical and made total sense. So it's not as if, like, Meade made a mistake and Lincoln immediately fired him and brought in Grant. Lincoln was confronted with a decision, who's going to be the best person to take over, and looking at Meade and Grant and their performance in each of those two major, major victories that happened almost literally at the same time, Grant was the obvious choice. It, it really wasn't a disrespect to Meade or this like total rebuke of him blowing this opportunity. I just think it was more like, it's got to be one of these two, and Grant was clearly the better choice. And if you look at the letter that you know Lincoln sends to Grant uh, for the, the victory at Vicksburg, he's going on about it, and he ends by saying, I have to, you know, he says, like, and I'm paraphrasing here, you were right and I was wrong. Like, Lincoln really doubted what Grant was going to do there. And Lincoln admitted that. He said, you were right and I was wrong and I fully admit that. And it's completely different than how he felt to towards Meade. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're kind of getting close to time and we do want to do our weekly feature. So hopefully you guys enjoyed our chat about Meade and our kind of where it kind of went in the direction where we talked about the Civil War in general, which I think is great. Um, I enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot of things I didn't know about General Meade, so thank you to my partners for handling the heavy lifting on the research this week. 
Uh, our first weekly feature that we do every week is called Of the People by the People, in which we each bring a social media post from the week that we found interesting or compelling. Um, I'll start this week. Um, I really liked um, a little thing that the Gettysburg National Park posted uh, earlier today where they combined two photos um, and did like a blend from one to the other and like a 10 second little video, uh, which I think is a really neat idea, but it shows um, a photo taken in um, 1863 and a photo taken um, now. So um, I think it's, it's very cool because it shows um, some dead bodies kind of on a rock that was right in the devil's den and then it shows what it looks like now and it's virtually exactly the same obviously minus um the dead body so um, i think that's kind of cool to put into context and to show that you know there's some continuity there and it just shows how well preserved that battlefield is what did you all have um so mine comes from uh lincoln belongs to the ages um so he posted a photo of a hotel in Niagara Falls, New York. And it says, on this day in 1857, um, so it was two days ago, the Lincoln family are guests at the famous Cataract Hotel in Niagara Falls, New York. The hotel welcomed famous guests throughout its more than 100 in existence. And it was an important part of the Underground Railroad with many of its staff helping es escape slaves. And I thought that was a very cool tweet. And that was also the, um, I believe on that trip, the Lincolns also crossed over into Canada and saw the falls from well would, would have been british north america but still they're in my country briefly uh, so i thought that was a really cool tweet the hotel unfortunately is no longer around but still all right mine is a tweet sent out by uh a guest we've had in the past kevin burke um and being the fashionista that i am it drew uh <laughs> caught my eye um and he talked about this on our show, I believe. And basically, he has a sport jacket uh, or a sports coat, or what is it called? I don't even know. Sport coat. Sport coat, yeah. See, being the fastest niche that I am, I don't even know. Anyways, it's got Lincoln on the back uh, with the American flag there. Um, on one of the sleeves, it says, with mouths towards none. And he's got a Lincoln face kind of on the, uh, the right front of the jacket. And he was at the Lincoln home posing for some pictures. So it's pretty awesome. I know uh, Dr. McDermott also uh, shared this as well. That's actually when I came across it. So check it looks great. I like it. Yes, Kevin, thank you. I think Dr. Burke, uh, yeah, thank you for supporting Lincoln in such an awesome way with that sport coat. So uh, color me envious of that. Uh, our other weekly feature is This Week in Lincoln. Do either one of you have a This Week in Lincoln this week? Mm -hmm. I have one that um, I saw on my when I was leaving Illinois on my last road trip uh, out east. I saw a billboard with Abraham Lincoln kind of laying down, kind of like with his head on his hand, like in a seductive type pose. Uh, and it was a billboard for a tequila. <laughs> uh, and I, as I understand it, last Tuesday was National Tequila Day. Um, so I'm going east again tomorrow, so I'm going to try to get a photo if I can. I believe it was on Interstate 80, kind of going around the southern part of the city there. Uh, but it's El Nacimiento Tequila, 
which apparently is now the official tequila of the Bicentennial of Illinois. So congratulations for that. Uh, but if you're going around down by kind of Gary, Indiana, down by the south suburbs there, uh, keep your eyes out for that. If you can send me a picture, because I could not find a picture of it online. I'll try to get one tomorrow. But it's a seductive posing link in advertising for El Nacimiento Tequila. And it is hideous and wonderful and beautiful all at the same time. So... Um, a perfect example this week in Lincoln because they have no business whatsoever using him, and no. yet it's perfectly acceptable to do so, yeah. apparently. So, anyway, I have one. I have one thing to throw in. Just oh, quickly. good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, we've been episodes been focused on George Mead, um, and we've been kind of alluded to the fact he's kind of the forgotten guy. Um, so I have a book to recommend for our listeners. Um, it's called Searching for George, George Gordon Mead. I'll hold that for you guys to see. Oh, nice. I'll, if I remember, I'll post a photo of it tomorrow. I actually bought it at Gettysburg. Um, so Searching for George Gordon Mead, The Forgotten Victor of Gettysburg by Tom Huntington. Um, I'm about halfway through the book. It is excellent. It is like he talks about his modern, the author discusses his modern day travels to try and find out more about Mead. And he also provides a biography of Mead. It's down to earth, very well written. Um, it's, it's why I've come to respect Mead so much. And like I said, I'm just halfway through it. So it is like an excellent book, highly recommended. I second that because I literally just finished that um, about two days ago. So nice. I think I saw it on your Twitter feed, knew we were doing it. So I went out and yeah. looked for it. There is a G, a George Mead Historical Society as well, for those of you who are truly interested, uh, that are really interested in him. Um, I would go there online. They do a lot of cool different events. Um, you can find his uh, gravesite is in Philadelphia, too. So, um, yeah, there's a there's people out there representing the old snapping turtles. So, yeah. And go uh, find his statue at Gettysburg, too. It's really cool. Yes, agreed. Yep, it is right around, right near the point where Pickett's charge was pushed back. Yep, and he's uh, on top of Old Baldy, his horse. And uh, Mary, Sherman pissed off Meade. Oh, I know. Sherman sends a letter basically talking shit about the Army of the Potomac. (laughs) And it really pissed him off, um, too. So I just wanted to make note of that. Well, Sherman is the master. If you read any of his letters or his memoirs, he's the master at throwing shade at people. Yes, so, um, <laughs> what an asshole Sherman is. <laughs> team Mead, hashtag Team Mead. Oh, man, those are fighting words. Yeah, Team Sherman. <laughs> All right, well, we hope you enjoyed our conversation about General Mead. We do have some exciting more content coming up for you in the following weeks, including some listener support, listener-submitted material that we're very excited to share that is coming around the bend. Uh, but for now, we need to sign off for this week. So for Railsplitter Mary and Railsplitter Nick, I am Railsplitter Jeremy. Thanking you for listening once again and reminding you to continue to walk the world with malice toward none and with charity for all. And we will see you next week. <laughs>